0: On July 8th, 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached his now famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And that is the title of my message this morning. I have plagiarized the title, but not the sermon. I... Um, Many of you all, when you were going through school, many of you all probably had to read that sermon. That sermon is now a classic piece of literature, a classic piece of literature, and often uh, it is a mandatory piece of literature uh, that students have to read. But most of us don't know a whole lot about that that sermon. That sermon is so famous that I believe in the state of Texas, there's an annual festival That the entire community congregates to, and that festival is like other festivals that talk about many different things or that have many different activities. But one of the highlights, in fact, the highlight, is where a man and I believe even or a woman at times will come up to the stage, dressed like Jonathan Edwards, who back in the mid 1700s uh, would have worn a likely would have worn a robe of some sort and would have worn the white hairdo of the time. He was also a uh, the president of Princeton for about a week, I believe, until he died of pneumonia. But those individuals will get up on stage and there for the next hour will read that sermon. Let me just tell you a little bit about this. Uh, tradition says that Edwards, on July eighth, seventeen 1741, uh, was not even supposed to preach that day. He was preaching to his congregation there in Northampton. He wasn't even supposed to be preaching that day, but due to other circumstances or pro- or providence, might we call it, uh, he was uh, he stepped into the pulpit. Now, during this time, I want you to imagine the mid seventeen hundreds. You didn't have like what we have today where individuals would participate in the message by shouting out or saying amen or hallelujah or waving their hands. That was not the cult of the day. During that day, everything was very non-emotional, very stoic, very little response. And in fact, if you were to respond in the middle of the message, it is likely that you would be shamed for it. It would have been considered improper because stoicism... Is what was celebrated, so that would have been very uncommon. However, this message brought about something entirely different. This sermon, "Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God," was Edwards's uh, treat, treaty, if you will, treaty, if you want, how you pronounce that. It was his effort to share the truth of God's judgment, God's wrath the fate of man, God's glory, and his salvation. And in the middle of that message, all the Stoicism departed. In fact, individuals in the middle of his message, imagine this, 1700s, individuals in the middle of the message cried, made wails and were crying in the middle of his message. They cried out, how then can we be saved? They did not want to wait for the conclusion of that message. They were so overwhelmed with the truth of God's judgment that they did not want to wait for the next 30 minutes to an hour. They wanted to know right then how can I be saved? I do not want to suffer the fate of God's wrath when he has made it clear and plain that there is an opportunity for salvation. There were wails. There was crying. So much so that Jonathan Edwards could not finish his sermon. The sermon was never completed. He had to step away from the pulpit and attend to the response. Simultaneously, in Europe, we have the beginnings of what's called the First Great Awakening, an evangelistic movement in Europe, and in Scotland, in all those areas, where there was a movement of the Holy Spirit. In the Americas, in the mid-1700s, this sermon is considered to be one of, if not the instigator... Of the Great Awakening here in the United States. Edwards, George Whitfield, and others, through their preaching, starting with this message, and their commitment to preaching the truth and the gospel, led a massive awakening, a revival throughout the throughout the United States, throughout those early colonies over in the Northeast. Now make no mistake. The power was not in Edwards' sermon. The power was in the Holy Spirit that providentially, sovereignly led Edwards to write that sermon, preach that sermon, and then move throughout the congregation to respond to that sermon. That's what happened. Edwards was a tool to be used for the glory of God. And it stirred the hearts of men. Now, let me also paint just one other picture. This revival was not brought about by preaching prosperity and wealth and health and good living. Which is customary for our day. Revival was brought about by preaching repentance. By preaching God's wrath. By preaching judgment. By preaching that there are consequences, eternal consequences for sin. Remember that the early church exploded onto the scene. We see it in Acts. And it just grew throughout that part of the world. And it wasn't because Christians were living their best life now. It was during a time when they were stuck on poles and lit on fire to light the streets. Christianity, true, genuine faith, as evidenced throughout history and in Scripture, does not grow and expand based upon comfort comfort living. It grows and expands based on sacrifice and on commitment, regardless, regardless of the circumstances that we're in. So the first great awakening was a signpost in the timeline of world history. Almost every history book, at least for now, will mention that First Great Awakening. And folks, let me just be very clear. That First Great Awakening was not just a signpost for the church and for the movement of the church. It was a signpost for world history. Everything changed after that. It made massive changes in our culture. But this message was not novel to Edwards because the author of Hebrews taught this message about 1700 years before. So I'm going to read this passage again and then we're going to walk through this. And I promise you that while this this passage brings about a lot of what I would call solemn emotions, that it did for me anyway, I hope what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do my best through God's grace to demonstrate how God's anger, his righteous anger, is actually a depiction of his love for us. And I'm going to show how that works through here, even though it is terrifying. For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is not a sentiment that our world likes to hear. That is not a depiction of a God that our world and our culture likes to embrace. But that is our God. And we do not serve two gods. One that is puppy dogs and unicorns. And one that is die hard. It's one of my favorite movies. (laughs) Right? We don't serve two gods. We have one God. So let's walk through this. The first point, let's look at what deliberate or willful sin and the judgment of God is. This is verses 26 and 27. So the author writes, for if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of truth, there are no longer rem- there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of the fire about to consume the adversaries. Now remember, last week the author was exhorting us to godliness, right? So he was telling us, be godly, be holy, be obedient, okay? And so then he follows it up with this week by saying this, for if we deliberately go on sinning, now that word deliberately in Greek means willfully. It means willfully, okay? So it's not just deliberate that we're doing it, it means that we are willfully doing it. Now think of this phrase, we are willfully going on sinning. So it's not just willful, like intentional, but it's also something that is lasting, all right? It is something that is pertaining to our lifestyle. So I want to break this up just a little bit because this verse is not as complicated as some people make it out to be. So the first thing I want to point out is that the author is speaking about individuals who are willfully sinning. These are not people who are occasionally sinning. These are not people who sin just on a regular basis. Folks, I'm going to tell you that I fit in both of those categories. I occasionally sin. In fact, I regularly sin. And anybody in here who says that they do not fall in that category, well, we might as well all be following you, right? But this passage is about individuals whose life is summed up by the characteristic that they are willfully sinning as a pattern of life. They know it is sin, they choose to sin, and they exhort that sin. It is almost who they are, if you will. And you know exactly what I mean by this. They have willfully, deliberately chosen a sinful lifestyle to follow in direct rejection of God's word, that they have chosen this lifestyle over another lifestyle. Now, some of you all right now are thinking of particular sins, of lifestyle. I'm not thinking of what the culture thinks of lifestyle. I'm talking about patterns of sin that we choose to adopt in our lives. Not only do we adopt it, not only do do we know that God's word uh, is, is offended by it, but that we also celebrate it. Pick your poison, pornography, uh, uh, alcoholism, drug use, uh, uh, g- pride, homosexuality, uh, pr- uh, uh, sexual immorality. Pick your sin. I'm not, that's not the point of this. The point of it is that there are individuals who are willfully choosing this, right? And so he says, if we willfully choose this sin, then something's going to happen. Okay? So that's who he's talking about here. These are people who have made the choice to incorporate a sinful lifestyle as their normal mode of operation. But the second is this these are not individuals who are ignorant of the truth. They have no ability to stand back and say, I didn't know. These are individuals who have received the knowledge of truth, they have heard the gospel, they know what the word of truth says. They have read it. They have been taught it. They have probably been amongst individuals who are living it. Yet they have decided to willfully choose sin over a holy lifestyle. They have experienced the blessings of the church, yet they reject the gospel and lean into their sin. Folks, these are not believers. These are not these are individuals who are not genuinely converted. And the third point here is this. Jesus cannot save these people. Jesus cannot save these people. Now that's a that's a difficult statement to say that Jesus can't do something, right? Because we've been taught that no one is too far from God's grace, have we not? And I would agree and affirm that 100%. But hang with me here for a second. If these individuals that we're talking about were genuinely converted, the outcome would be this. They would no longer willfully reject the truth and live in sin. Therefore, they wouldn't fit in this category. I'm speaking about individuals for the pattern of their entire life, live in rejection of truth And willfully, deliberately choose a lifestyle of sin. There is not another sacrifice for them, is what God's word says. It says, For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for them. Folks, if you are waiting for another high priest to step in and make a sacrifice for you to save you from your sin, it's not happening. Jesus is our high priest. His sacrifice is complete. That is it. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. There is no other way. And that ticks the world off. Because the world is wanting to look for any other way to find eternal life and prosperity than Jesus. But this is just the plain truth. And the final is this. Folks... Hell is real, and those who reject Jesus will burn in hell. Now, these are not metaphors. Oh, when Jesus was talking about hell, he was actually just talking about an eternal darkness, and finally we'll just go away. Like, poof, smoke. That's the the end of all my voices. But you get the idea, right? That's that's what the world wants to say. In fact, there have been some very prominent evangelical scholars that towards the end of their life, they have chosen to say that hell is not an eternal punishment, that eventually we just go poof. We just, we, we are just, we just become non-existent anymore. Folks, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that hell is real, that there is a gnashing of teeth, and that there is fire. And these are not metaphors. And there are, there's another, to, to just kind of soften this, there are individuals and folks, Bugs Bunny was preaching this a long time ago, that hell is the devil's domain, not God's. That God's not involved in hell, he's involved with heaven. Folks, God to be sovereign cannot be sovereign over heaven and not over hell. God is sovereign over all of it. So if you go to hell, it's not by accident It is not by accident. God is in charge of both domains. Hell is not Satan's happy place. That is his prison. That is where he goes to suffer, just like everyone who is unconverted. Now, this is dark, but it is true. It is true. The most unloving thing I could do right now is to either skip this passage and just to go on with the unicorns and puppy dogs, uh, God, that our world likes, Or I can preach this and just say, listen to the truth. Now, folks, everyone in here might believe this, might be converted, might be following Jesus. But let me tell you, we all are dealing with individuals who are not. And some of us don't want to talk about this because it's uncomfortable. Folks, it is unloving, in fact, hateful to avoid talking about the truth of hell. Jesus talked about hell a lot. And he wanted to scare people out of hell. There's nothing wrong with it. So let's not delay. Do not tarry in coming to the Lord because the Lord may not tarry. Some of us will say that we've got time. Who says we've got time? Who says? the person driving home from church today that gets smacked up the side of their vehicle by a semi that didn't stop for a red light thought they had time. I hate to say it, folks, but in our situation right now, the individual who didn't think they were going to get COVID but ended up getting COVID and ended up going, they were part of the 0.02%, they thought they had time. It is a better thing to live and just assume that we do not have time. Because we don't know what time it is. We would be better off just assuming it is always the last hour. It is always the last hour. This is what Edwards wrote in this sermon. He said, Unconverted men walk over a pit of hell on a rotten covering. You never know when you're going to fall through. We do not have time. There is no delay. So if you find yourself in willful sin against God, then please, I plead with you, repent and come to Christ. The gospel is true. It is life-giving. There is no other path to salvation. Not works, not Buddha, not science, not political leaders, money, power. Hell is real. Hell is hot and there is gnashing of teeth, there is eternal torment. These are not metaphors. So that's the first thing. If you are not in Christ, come to Jesus, please. Please come to Jesus. Now, if you are walking by faith in Christ, then this message is still for you because you may have loved ones in your life, who are not in Christ, plead with them the cause of Christ, send them scripture, love them with service, share with them the gospel, pray for genuine fruit. Why? Because hell is real. Hell is hot. There is gnashing of teeth. There is eternal torment. And these are not metaphors. Hell is real. There was a ministry for the longest time out of Western Kentucky, and it was called HR. For some reason, for the longest time, I thought it was human resources. I did not understand it. But it stands for hell is real. And I partnered with them for a couple years, going around to different uh, places with young people and preaching the gospel to tell them hell is real. And finally, you may have enemies in your life. Plead with them the cause of Christ. Send them scripture. Love them with service. Share with them the gospel and pray for genu- genuine fruit. Why? because hell is real. Hell is real. Second point this morning, signs of rejection. So what are signs of rejection of Christ? And so we see in the old covenant that there were individuals who rejected the law, like some of uh, in our day reject Jesus. And when they rejected the law, namely through idolatry, there was no mercy for them. And so what it says here. In verse 28, anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So according to the law, these two or three witnesses would gather and they would be able to say, this person is idolatrous. They are willfully rejecting the law. And so therefore there was no mercy for them in that case. There was no mercy for them. And then the author here says this, How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has done three things? Trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. Those are the three marks of somebody willfully rejecting Jesus. An apostate. So let's just briefly walk through that. What does trampling the Son of God mean? Mocking, rejecting, meta- metaphorically spitting on the Son of God. More specifically, rejecting Jesus' Sonship, rejecting His divinity. Folks, if you reject the Sonship, the humanity, the relationship between the God and Son, you are rejecting Jesus. If you're rejecting His divinity, you're rejecting Jesus. And by doing so, you are rejecting the work of the cross. Another sign or another mark is rejecting the blood of the covenant. This is a rejection of the power of Christ's blood in the sacrifice. Now, folks, the blood of Jesus is an offensive thing in our culture. It's offensive. Many in our culture reject the blood because it seems archaic. Now, I want you to hear me here. Don't shut me down. I want you to listen very clearly here. Our culture rejects the idea of the blood of Jesus saving us because it's archaic. Yet at the same time, there are individuals who kill babies. They kill babies in the name of comfort and success. And then they sing songs about it and say that killing their baby was the greatest thing for them and their future. I'm not talking about pro-life, pro-choice. Folks, I am adamantly pro-life, absolutely 100%. I'm not getting in a political stand here. What I'm talking about are these individuals who are not just pro-choice. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about individuals who on TikTok have their babies in their arms, dancing, singing the abortion song. There's a song about this, then they toss their born kid off the picture and start twerking. That's an inappropriate dance, by the way. Start twerking to this song on TikTok, celebrating it. Not getting into a political argument here because abortion just exists. That's just a reality that we're in right now. That's what it, it what its is. What it is is what it is. Let's not write songs about it and dance and celebrate it. Regardless of why that child was aborted, it's not something to celebrate. Can we all agree with that? A life was ended. And that's the world that, we, that we're in. We reject the blood of Jesus, but we celebrate killing a baby in the womb. It's something to mourn, even if, even if. that that mother is going to die if that baby is not taken, even if that mother is going to die. And for the life of the mother, if you want to go to the greatest extreme, they take that child because the mother is going to die. We don't sing songs about it. We mourn it. We shed tears over it. How archaic are we? We're no better than the pagans. Rejection of the blood is rejecting payment of sins. And then finally, insulting the spirit of grace. And folks, this is blasphemy, all right? It is rejecting his work and maligning him. And I think that we, including myself, need to take really great care here because this is, this is one of the marks of rejecting Christ. And the reason I say that we need to take care here, and I, I'm speaking directly to me is this, is because sometimes as us as Baptists who, are, who tend to be a little bit more stoic. Now, I say that knowing what church I'm in. Uh, we tend to be a little bit more exuberant here, right? All right? But the truth is, is that we tend to be a little bit more stoic. And we tend to poke fun at individuals who are more charismatic, who talk about their faith or, or uh, exemplify their faith in a more charismatic way. And we poke fun at that, and we think of it as weird and foolish. And I understand why, because we think that oftentimes that it's not genuine, that it is made up, and that it is an act. I understand that. And we should rightly uh, be antagonistic against hypocritical acting out the works of the Holy Spirit. But folks, some of it's Genuine. We need to be very careful about maligning genuine works of the Holy Spirit. So it's best just probably not to poke at anybody, and I'm speaking to myself on that one. So how is it that we f- that we avoid falling into these marks? First, just trust Jesus. Just trust Jesus. That's not hard, okay? Trust Jesus because those who are genuine followers of Jesus will never display these marks of rejection. Second, read your Bible. Try to understand the depths of Jesus's identity, the effectiveness of his blood, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Rather than mocking, you'll be provoked to worship. And thirdly, worship corporately with one another. Do not reject corporate worship. Because we see the works of the Spirit, the effects of the blood, and the glory of Christ most consistently in the corporate body. That's where we see it. And if you're not in the corporate body, in corporate worship, you are not going to see the works, and then you are more likely going to mock and reject. So pour yourself into the life of the church. Now let's get to the final point the final point of this message. It's from verses 30 and 31. And this is about the hands of the living God. So he says. And let us consider, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong wrong verse here. Here we are. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more, or how much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the spirit of grace? Verse 30, For we know the one who has said vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now here's what Jonathan Edwards said about that. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God... That of an angry God, without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. I love that passage. Why is it that in our sin that God does not strike us dead right now? His pure pleasure. The only thing saving us from certain death is God's pleasure. That's it. That's why every time we wake, we need to praise God that we have another breath to take. Because it is only by His will and His grace that we are still beating. Now, obviously, not all death is a result of sin. That's not what Jonathan Edwards is saying. But still the same, our lives are held in the palm of Jesus' hands. Many struggle with this concept of a God who gets angry because many... I'm afraid even in the church, we worship a deficient God. We worship a God of unicorns and puppy dogs who cries at Hallmark movies. Folks, not in any universe does God cry. I'm sorry, Brittany. God does not cry at Hallmark movies. Okay? Does not cry. Old Yeller, I get it. Okay? But not at Hallmark movies. Okay? Our God experiences the full range of righteous emotions. Anger is a righteous emotion, okay? It's when we have anger, all right, where our sin, often in pride, converts our anger to unrighteous, okay? Anger in itself is not a sin. It's our pride in how we deal with anger that makes it sinful, But God's anger is never sinful, it's righteous, and I'm going to, again, argue that it provokes God's love, and I will explain that here in a minute. But let's examine how God's anger is exuded towards sin. First of all, he says here, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. I have never seen a movie, well, maybe one where there's a psychopath involved, but let me just explain this. I have never seen a movie where somebody exacting vengeance is like you know, just happy, right? I'm, 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 I'm revenge. This is revenge. All right. I've seen death wish. All right. Both of them. All right. There was no happy, happy, uh, joy, joy there. Okay. Bruce Willis was going after him. Okay. That's the second one, by the way. Okay. But I mean, that's just the way it is. All right. God is not like joyful during this time. He's angry. And the vengeance is God. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32. These are words promising retribution for willful, deliberate sin. They are not of a cheerful God. They are of This vengeance is a result of his anger towards sin. And secondly, it says the Lord will judge his people. That comes from the same passage. And I will say this, unlike our justice, and we've seen this recently, unlike our justice, which is completely imperfect, God's justice never is. It is always perfect. It is always righteous. It is always correct. Those who evade human justice will not evade God's justice. You see, we want justice now, 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 now. Folks, our justice is not perfect. It never will be. We need to get over it. What we need to realize is that God's justice will happen. It will happen. In Romans 12, 19, Paul uses these same verses from Deuteronomy to prevent our vengeance towards an enemy. He says this, Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Leave room for God's wrath. Almost like welcoming it, right? Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, this verse distinguishes our anger from God's anger. I think we need to understand that, okay? Why is it okay for God to get angry and invoke vengeance and not for us? It's because we are not God. We're not God. We're not perfectly holy. We're not perfectly righteous. God's vengeance is different from ours. Our anger is mixed with pride and other sins that cause our vengeance to be disproportional and unconstructive. It's not truly wrath against a sin. It's wrath because you've harmed me. It's a pride thing. It's really not about a person's sin. It's about, you've harmed me. You've made me look bad. You've you've made me uncomfortable. You've made it difficult for me. I'm going to repay that. It's not about God. It's not about holiness. It's just about vengeance, drawing blood. It's tit for tat. That's not God's vengeance. That's not his wrath. God's vengeance is perfect Because his anger is perfectly managed, proportional, and it's not tainted with sin. Because it is all about his holiness and his glory. So let God have the vengeance. Let God do the judging. And Paul follows it up by another uh, exhortation. He says this, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. If our, anger is to, if our response to anger is to lash out, we're going to sin. But Paul suggests that our angry reactions are often evil we're repaying evil with evil. And Paul says, don't do that. Instead, what does he say here? Feed your enemy. Give him something to drink. If I could say this, love your enemy. Love your enemy. We can definitely go wrong in our vengeance and in our anger. You will never go wrong by loving your enemy. You can never be disproportional. Go, in fact, if I could say this, go out of your way to love your enemy. Go out of your way. Do, do your best to just love your enemy. What is false? It says, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Because sometimes your enemy wants you to react. Wants you to demonstrate that Vengeance. But as followers of Christ, we're not going to do that because vengeance is the Lord's. We're just going to love you to death. We're just going to love you to death. We're just going to demonstrate the love of Jesus. And you know what might just happen? They might come to Christ. They might come to Christ. I'm convinced, though, that folks that some folks don't want that. They just want to see their enemies burn. But how much greater would it be to see them just come to Jesus. Just come to Jesus. Our justice cannot compare to God's. It is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And to to complete Jonathan Edwards' thought, it says, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at one moment, at any one moment, out of hell, but the mere pleasure of God. That's terrifying. You know what's more terrifying than the devil being in control of hell? God being in control of hell. That's terrifying. Now, you may say that this makes God sound like a psychopath. And if God were us, I would agree with you. But God is God, and we are not. He's not a psychopath. He's just sovereign. He's just sovereign. So let me finish with this statement here. I have often supposed Christians, that Christians who are open, who are in open, willful, deliberate sin, that they do not believe in hell. They may acknowledge it, but they don't believe in it. Nor do they believe the God of the Bible. They say they believe in God and that they trust Jesus. But I don't believe they do, because if they absolutely believed in hell and they absolutely believed in the God of the Bible, they would be utterly terrified of what their sin is going to do for them. Shortly following this passage, the author is going to be going into chapter 11 with this great passage of faith, and I can't wait to get there. I'm so excited about that. And I don't want us to believe for one minute that that is by accident. I believe that it was completely concocted by the Holy Spirit. And I believe that the author intends to follow up this warning passage from today with examples of what it looks like to live in a life contrary to deliberate sin. What does it look like to live a life that is faithful? Not perfect, but faithful. So here's what it looks like to fall into the hands of a living God. It's terrifying. Here's what it looks like to live a life of faith. God, to the willful, deliberate sinner, should be terrifying. And if the sinner is not terrified, then their disbelief is proven. But I might say this, that it is a blessed thing to be wrapped up into the arms of a loving God. It's a blessed thing to be wrapped up in the arms of a loving God. And this is what I mean by that God's anger is also a demonstration of his love. Is that passages like this and God's demonstration of his wrath and anger provoke individuals to believe and to trust and to love him and to follow him We're not serving two different gods. They are the same God, just as your father can both be loving and angry at the same time. You see, when God demonstrates his anger towards his children or towards creation, it is because he is trying to demonstrate his holiness and his glory so that people would turn from their wicked ways and believe. It is an example of his wrath so that others might come. Why scare us with the the reality of hell so that we would love God? And that is the most loving thing in the world. Remember, refusing to talk about hell is not loving, it's hateful. The most loving thing that we can do is to talk about hell and to demonstrate that there are consequences to sin, eternal consequences to sin. That is a loving thing to do. And so out of God's anger, we see the love of God preventing or keeping individuals from following the same path that led individuals straight into the pit of despair. And Isaiah writes regarding God's relation to Israel, the nation that rejected him and cursed him. Though the mountains move and the hills shake, my love will not be removed from you and my covenant peace will not be shaken, says your compassionate Lord. Our God is not a God who is only walking around with a big stick, ready to swing it. His desire is not to come around and swing a big stick, but he will swing a big stick. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to love him. He wants us to follow him so that others might see our example and trust in his son. So what do we as a church do with words like this? Go to your loved ones and tell them of the reality of hell. Read to them this passage. Tell them that there are consequences for their deliberate Willful sin. Tell them to trust Jesus. Tell them to get into the body of Christ where they can see others who trust Jesus and embrace Him. Do not forsake the fellowship which is modeling the love of Christ daily. Folks, you are not growing in Christ by just en- enveloping yourself with a world who is constantly rejecting Christ. You are following Christ by enveloping yourself with a community who loves Christ. Do it for yourself. Do it for your children. Share the reality of hell. And don't forget that you have a loving God that wants you, pleads with you to come to his son. To avoid every moment of this. Remember, there is a way. There is a way. But there's only one, and that's Jesus. A God who is not loving would not even give us that. Would not even give us that. And remember, we are totally, totally at the mercy of a sovereign God. John MacArthur said this, If we could lose our salvation, we would have already. So trust and be thankful in the Lord that saves and be willfully, deliberately following Christ.